Welcome, everybody, back to the Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites, our weekly look at food, farming, the environment, and energy. Right here on the Mark Steiner Show on WEAA 88.9 FM, home of the Big 4-0 Birthday Bash, taking place Saturday, January 28th. More info at WEAA.org. This morning on Sound Bites, we're hearing the first part of a panel that I moderated last week at Future Harvest Class's 18th Annual Conference called Cultivating the Chesapeake Food Shed. The panel was called Policy Scoper, What's Happening in Your State Capital. We discussed what food and agricultural policies are the most important in the states of Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, Delaware, and the District of Columbia, and also discussed what food ag policy could look like nationally with the incoming Trump administration. Today, we'll hear the first part of that, and next week, we'll hear the second part. Enjoy. So this is the panel on what's in your state capital, and um, we're going to be looking at food and ag policies that are important to your state. We're going to start by kind of looking at an overview of the nation and seeing then how that fits into our world and state um, and how the new administration coming in in Washington might affect agricultural policy as well in our states and look at the question of, uh, of sustainability, of conventional farming, and people will call themselves sustainable farmers. What does that mean? Um, and one of the things we've been talking about a lot is people kind of focus some of this on that there is a war between farmers, a war between the government and certain farmers, regulations, no regulations. What do they mean? Does it have to be a war? Is there a way we can build ag and build food and create food policy that makes sense for the broader public and for all of us? So that's part of what we're going to wrestle with with our panel today. Let me introduce everybody to you. So sitting right here, the first man to my right uh, is Ferd Huffner, who is um, uh, the NCAC Policy Director, the National Sustainable Agricultural Coalition, and has been involved in for a long, long time, and is really, really, really affluent in all this stuff. Uh, and sitting right next to me uh, is Spencer Moss from West Virginia Food and Farm. And sitting next to Ferd, I hope, I hope I have this right, is Lane, right? Yep. Right? Uh, Lane Sadowski, who is with the D.C. Food Policy Council. Uh, and at the very end of the table is Ed Key, who is the last eight years has been uh, the Secretary of Agriculture in Delaware. And um, is in his, he's about to turn himself out and enjoy his life. Good for him, is what I say. So um, and we're going to ask our panelists to, when you want to speak, we'll just can slide, slide the mics up and down so you can share the mics as we go um, so we can get your voice inside the mic and to be recorded. Oh, I'm sorry, but you, I didn't mean to. Uh, the man who I should have introduced because I had lunch with him is Eric Benfeld from Virginia. Virginia Tech, good to have you with us at the end of the table. Sorry, Eric. Um, so we're going to begin uh, by asking Ferd to kind of just open up the conversation, talking about this kind of o- the overarching look. Great. Well, I'm very happy to be here. I'm uh, now actually the senior advisor to the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, having just stepped down after 30 years of being the director. I'm very much looking for my looking forward to my new role, um, and uh, um, National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition. For those who aren't aware of us, are, is sort of the leading voice for sustainable ag and sustainable farmers around the country in the federal policy circles in Washington D.C. And we've been doing that since the late 1980s, and um, have nearly 120 member groups, farmer-based groups, all across the country. Um, <clears throat> Uh, the, the, the question that every day the phone rings and our communications person says, you know, buzzes my phone, I, I already know exactly what the call is going to be. It's, what are you hearing about who's going to be the Secretary of Agriculture? So since that's what the press wants to know, I'll start with that. Who the heck knows? <laughs> One thing I do know is that at 11.30 this morning, today at 11.30, Secretary Tom Vilsack, who has served as Secretary of Agriculture for the last eight years, said goodbye to USDA and walked out the door. And there is no replacement, well, there is a temporary replacement, uh, Deputy Secretary, or Acting Deputy Secretary Michael Skews from Delaware is now Acting Secretary and Acting Deputy Secretary um, for the next week. But what happens after that is anybody's guess. There are at least 20 names in the ring and lots of speculation, but nothing really firm coming out of Trump Tower about who that selection is going to be. So we're all waiting with, uh, with bated breath. I will also note, you know, this gets kind of in the weeds, but uh, what happens between administrations is there's a transition team for each and every department and 
in the government and nor under normal circumstances the transition team gets named you know pretty soon after election day and they operate they're going strong all during December and early January I was looking back at my calendar and in 2008 NSAC alone, just one organization, had had three meetings with the transition team for USDA in December, all before Christmas. The transition team for this administration, for the Department of Agriculture, has four people on it, three of whom have been named within the last week, and they haven't set up shop yet. So it is a complete unknown. I don't know what we're walking into in terms of almost anything, but I'll be happy to entertain questions about it. So just really in a nutshell, because I don't want to take a lot of time, if you sort of divide food policy into do you have enough food, is the food safe, is the food healthy, is it grown sustainably, and is it local, um, as, as big broad buckets, um, th this is what I see coming at us in a nutshell on enough food. Um, don't know what the new administration is going to say. Congress is pretty clearly, the majority in Congress is pretty clearly chomping at the bit to do some cut back of the uh, SNAP or food stamp program. So that is definitely going to be a biggie. On safe food, uh, with the Food Safety Modernization Act being the big thing that's happened in the last uh, during the during the period of time that President Obama's been in office, um, that's a pretty unclear question mark point at this point. There was nothing in the campaign about it, nothing in the position papers about it, um, nothing that's really been said since Election Day about it. Um, kind of an open question. Uh, we're actually hoping that pieces of the produce safety role that uh, affect farmers might be reopened and re-examined, but we'll see how that goes. On, on healthy food, I think that is one place to be very nervous in terms of nutrition standards and some of the work that both Congress and uh, the First Lady have done uh, in the past period of years. I would uh, think that there is going to be, I have to be a very strong defense of those things to not see erosion in that area. On sustainable food, um, uh, there's a lot that I could say, but I will keep it to uh, conservation programs uh, where a lot of the support goes to farmers to be doing sustainable management practices on their farm has already been under attack. It's been under attack um, in the annual government funding process. It was under attack in the last farm bill. We've, uh, while conservation funding is at an all-time high over the course of historical look at it, it has actually in recent years been going down, not dramatically, but, uh, but going down, not up. Um, and so I think that's going to be a place where um, there's going to have to be a lot of attention uh, moving forward. Um, and then on, on local food, um, there's a lot at stake. And I'll use local food as my transition or pivot point to just mention the federal farm bill since it's coming up. Um, local food, regional food programs at USDA that are funded through the Farm Bill, as well as most things related to organic farming that other than the actual organic certification program itself, um, programs for minority and socially disadvantaged farmers, programs about renewable energy, uh, programs uh, 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 on a uh, on an array of economic development issues that are all now under the current Farm Bill, funded through that Farm Bill, go out of existence September 30th, 2018, unless the 2018 Farm Bill puts more money back into them. That's not the case with commodity subsidies. It's not the case with crop insurance subsidies. It's not the case with conservation programs. It's not the case with the specialty crop or fruit and vegetable programs. Those all have permanent funding as the SNAP. So if Congress did nothing and you came back 50 years from now, it would still be cranking along under current, you know, if hypothetically, if nothing happened, they would still be spending billions of dollars. Um, a year, but that's not the case with the newer, more innovative programs in the federal farm bill. 
um, a lot of the things that the National Sustainable Ag Coalition and many of our partner groups have worked very hard on in the last decade or so to create, to get stood up at USDA, to really get amazing things happening on the ground. But they are all potentially in jeopardy during the next uh, Farm Bill process. So in a nutshell, it's 2018 Farm Bill. Why is it 2018? Because the current Farm Bill ends September 30th, 2018. If everything goes really smoothly, which I will not predict it will, there will be a bill on the president's desk to sign, which is the new 2018 Farm Bill, by or before September 30th, 2018. So that, that's the goal. We'll see if that's how it turns out to be. Um, uh, but there's a pretty heavy-duty agenda there, as well as on some of the other issues I mentioned, like food safety and, and nutrition standards, which are outside of the Farm Bill context. So. Uh, there's there's going to be a lot to be on to play defense on, but the best defense, of course, is a good offense. So we will also be going fairly filled, full tilt um, at offense as well. And um, I'll I'll leave it at that for now. I'm sure there'll be lots more to say. There was a lot there, <laughs> a whole lot there. So let, let me leave. One of the things I think that I've heard a lot um, that may occur in the next four years, and then with agriculture as well as many other things, is that the weight will be shifted to states to make decisions they haven't made before and to develop policies they haven't made before. And so let's start, start there. And, and, uh, and I, so given what Ferd just said, and, and let me start with you as somebody who's been in, in the, um, has run an ag department, state government for eight years now, what you see, at that, what that means in terms of the kind of issues that have come falling back to the state and what states, what states going to have to respond to? I think it's true. Um, I think it's probably obvious more and more comes to the state. I think the challenge in our state is um, not unique to other states. You know, um, let me just illustrate that with a couple of examples. In the last eight years, we initiated a young farmer program where our state will loan up to $500,000 at 0% interest for a 30-year loan, and and actually the farmer can take a, or we take a second position if the farmer has to borrow from another bank to finish it off. And there are qualifications. They have to be, either have an agricultural education or a significant experience in farming or some combination of the two. And we're really proud of that. In four years, we've had 28 farmers sign up and, um, it's about 2,800 acres all told. And um, what the state gets out of it, those farms go into our permanent farmland preservation program. So that's a way a state has coped with diminishing federal resources. Uh, we do have a, a typical ag land preservation program where it preserves farms. And that's been an investment for 20 years into the physical resource of the farm and of the land. But this is something I'm proud of that we've started that begins to invest with real money at the settlement table in the human resource. So, so that's one example of a state program. You know, all the issues that you spoke of, Ferd, um, we're really concerned with local. My background has been local my whole life. Um, you know, we deal with urban agriculture. Eight years ago, there were seven community gardens in Wilmington. Now there's over 80 in Wilmington and the surrounding area. And we initiated a micro-grant program. It's not a, a big deal, but it's uh, $20,000. And the most any one applicant can get is $1,000 to support and get started uh, to start a community garden. And, and that's been well received. And, um, and the rule is, if you get it one year, you can't get it again for another two years to try to spread it around. Farm to school, all of those things, um, farm to restaurant, farm to school. Our community farmers markets have grown from seven or eight to 26. And, um, and, the, and I would say the community farmers markets support the large traditional growers, but significant support for the young the part-time grower, the small farmer, and that gives them a marketplace, which frankly wasn't there when I was a young farmer guy back in the 70s when I drove my Model T Ford to town. But uh, <laughs> um, So I don't know, Mark, if that's what you're looking for. That's yeah, an I, overview I, I, of some state stuff 
to address those kind of things. Let me say that key has been for the last eight years the Secretary of Ag in, in Delaware. So, so, so what would be strategies from the state side out? And um, Spencer Moss, West Virginia Food and Farm. Let me start with you and get this mic slid over here, slid over to you so you can. I mean, so so when, given the, this reality and given the reality, most people in, how many people in, in this room are farmers now? All right. And my guess is that most farmers are relatively small. Am I right or wrong? Yeah? Okay. So, and given the, I mean, that's the, one of the fastest growing arenas in agriculture are the men and women in this room. Um, and where the other more conventional farming communities are aging out, uh, younger people are moving in, but in a different kind of farming. So I wonder how that fits into the strategy of the future dealing with states, ag policy, and the rest. Um. I think it's a really good question. I think in West Virginia, there's um, a sentiment, perhaps with a new administration, that uh, farming is private business and it's not something that should be supplemented or worked on by the public sector in any way, shape, or form. And uh, my coalition completely disagrees with that, being a nonprofit organization. Um, you know, the average age of a farmer in West Virginia, I believe, is 61 and a half. Um, and they're aging out, and we have to do things that attract young people into the state. Or we have to do things that attract young people to agriculture. And at this point in time, um, you know, we know that m most people are one and two generations of removed from the farm. Um, so they're not inheriting property. They're not just taking over from mom and dad as, as you know, as it would have been in my family in the Woodwest, or in the, I'm originally from the Midwest. Um, and so, so... I think it's constituent groups and groups like us that have to convince the state that um, you need to make an investment in um, bringing up new farmers. And does that look like investing um, more in the Farmland Protection Board? I see my friends in the back over there. Hi, guys. Um, <laughs> um, so that they're you know easing property and keeping it into into production or helping you know farmland stay farmland. Or um, is it in a state that's really heavy oil and gas? Is it um, maybe? not passing bills that, you know, really could potentially destroy farmland. And so, um, you know, those are things that our state really needs to look at and consider. Um, but, but again, it's kind of fighting this notion that there's, um, that the public sector shouldn't have anything to do with farming, which should only be a private business. And I think that there's just a lot of hurdles for people getting into agriculture, especially if you're one and two generations removed from the farm, and somebody has to step up and help these folks jump those hurdles um, and whether that looks like um, helping them with land or helping them with alternative loan options or education or training or whatever but there needs to be some investment from from states in that and what about the let's take a virginia perspective from eric benfeld part of it is understanding the changing demographics of agriculture uh, we have you know roughly about forty seven thousand farms and probably you know three thousand of those are fairly large more commodity markets that would be dependent on larger scale, uh, whether it's national or international markets. But then uh, we probably have about 43,000 farms that are, you know, anywhere from two acres to, to 120 acres. And so I think I've seen a little bit uh, the growth in seeing the need to try to develop markets for everybody who is in the farming operation. I think uh, most recently, uh, Virginia has established both an agriculture and forestry industry development program uh, where they would offer communities trying to develop those, those industries. And then also uh, recently, uh, uh, a grant and loan program for farmers that are looking to develop new industries. Uh, but I, th I think it's an ongoing, the ongoing need for communication and education to, to really inform policy. And at the same time, uh, when there are opportunities to maybe change the language in a specific code without having to go through legislation, I think that's uh, one thing that we have found through the Virginia Fo uh, Food System Council is sometimes a legislator will introduce a bill without uh, realizing that there's ways to maybe pass that bill without going through legislation, but through working with uh, 
the code and the language in the code. So I, I think uh, certainly looking forward, uh, probably presently, the, the budget situation is really going to determine a lot about policies moving forward because Virginia's facing a shortfall. So that'll really affect where we uh, prioritize. Yeah, Maryland's facing, what is it, a $400 million shortfall this coming year and a billion over the next four years. Mm -hmm. So um, I think every state is facing that. Delaware is probably the same. $345 million shortfall coming up. I'm sure West Virginia, the rest are the same as well, right? Mm -hmm. So, so how does this, I mean, really trickle down, Elaine Golowski from the D.C. Food Policy Council, but not being a farming hub <laughs> uh, in D.C., but clearly urban farmers do exist. I wonder how this, those kind of policies trickle down to D.C. Well, we are not facing a deficit in D.C. We are seeing an upsurge in population, um, budget, and property tax, but that also places a lot of constraints on our farmers. We do have about 27 acres in the city um, under cultivation, and that is includes nine commercial farms. And if you had asked me what that was in 2012, I would have said zero. Um, so there is a huge amount of interest in young people and people changing careers in the district, getting into farming, learning about sustainable agricultural practices, and really trying to make a commercially viable business out of it, which is very challenging because our property values are extremely high. So each little quarter acre farm that we have is really facing a lot of financial pressures and they have all the same issues that other young farmers have. They need to learn the skills, they need to learn the business side of things, but they are um, faced with a much higher baseline cost. So I think one of the answers for us is definitely to look to regional cooperation. You know, if we are a testing ground, if we're a place that's never going to be able to grow enough food to sustain ourselves as a city in the long term, but we can have those demonstration locations. We have um, farmers growing in basements of bars, aquaponics. We have farmers growing on the rooftops of office building. People are getting very creative, but they don't necessarily have um, financial support that's coming for them directly. So we're very excited about the new urban farming bill that has been proposed that may not be going forward under the new administration, but I think that we as a state, well, hopefully a state someday, probably not under been this administration. For decades, decades for that to happen. <laughs> Still trying. Um, Good still trying as a, as a quasi city state can sort of take on some of those roles and responsibilities some of those concepts that are included in that urban agriculture bill and think about what we can apply um, to ourselves whether it's um, support for um, cleaning up contaminated soils or helping cooperative businesses get off the ground and just placing a better framework for new farmers to get off the ground. And maybe, you know, a lot of those farmers won't end up staying in the district. Maybe they'll move out into the surrounding region and get bigger and bigger parcels of land as they grow. But I think that we have to lean on our adjacent states because we're never going to get there on our own. But we can certainly sort of sell the concept about why and how agriculture is so important to keep our city moving forward. You're listening to a panel I moderated last week at the Future Harvest Casa's 18th annual conference called Policy Scoper, What's Happening in Your State Capital. We discuss food and agricultural policies that are most important to the states of Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, Delaware, and the District of Columbia. We also discussed what food and agricultural policy could look like nationally under a Trump administration. Right now, we have to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll hear more from our panel. Welcome back, folks, to Sound Bites and the Mark Steiner Show, right here on WEAA, 88.9 FM, home of the Big 4-0 Birthday Bash, taking place Saturday, January 28th, or info at weaa.org. This morning on Sound Bites, we're hearing the first part of a panel that I moderated last week at the Future Harvest Casa's 18th annual conference called Cultivate the Chesapeake Food Shed. The panel was called Policy Scoper, What's Happening in Your State Capital? We discuss food and agricultural policies that are most important to the states of Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, Delaware, and the District of Columbia, as well as looking at food and agricultural policy and how it be affected by the incoming Trump administration. Today, we'll hear the first part of that, and next week, we'll conclude it with the second part. Our guests were Ed Key, who is the Delaware State Secretary of Agriculture. 
Spencer Moss, Executive Director of West Virginia Food and Farm Coalition, Eric Benfeld, Area and Extension Specialist with Community Viability at Virginia Cooperative Extension at Virginia Tech, Lane Sidlowski, Food Policy Director for the District of Columbia Office of Planning and the District of Columbia Food Policy Council, and Ferd Hoffner, Senior Strategic Advisor to the National Sustainable Agricultural Coalition. So let's, let's get political for a minute here. So there have been for a long time this battle over CAFO's industrialized agriculture in communities and new sustainable younger farmers who are building a, a different kind of agriculture that's been disdained by many people as kind of um, in some of the farming community as niche farming. Um, the reality is that, that in, you said it was 57? What did you say the age, average age of farmer was in West Virginia? 61 and a half. See, I'm thinking Maryland's like 57 years old. Um, and so every, every state is like in their 50s or 60s where, where farmers are aging out. Um, and their kids are not taking over the farms as they were before. So there's a lot of farmland there. So the question is, what has to happen? What is the both, A, in a confrontational sense, battle, but also what is the conversation that has to take place that begins to change the dynamic state level, which may be more feasible than worrying about the ag bill in 2018, which, which I do want to come back to. You know, so so how, how, do you, how do you envision that could happen? In other words, I mean, if you, there's a woman, let me just throw this out. There's a woman, Ellen Silverberg, who is a professor at the School of Public Health uh, in, uh, at Johns Hopkins. He just wrote a book, his name I'm blocking on, but it'll come to me in a minute, uh, on the chicken industry. Thank you very much, what you said. Uh, <laughs> and she had a really interesting thesis that, um, that you have to view larger agriculture as an industry and regulate it as an industry, um, not to kill it, not to throw it out, not to move it away, because it's part of the economic and agricultural reality. But there are other realities that are growing. So how do we see this? So what is the discussion that has to happen? And how would you have it happen on your state levels to build this kind of new future? And then I'm going to turn this over to you. I'm curious how you think of how you think that should happen and get this dialogue going with the audience. Well, what do you all think on the panel? Who wants to jump first, please? Um, Ed thank Key, you. Sega, uh, thank you, Mark. From Delaware. Um, it's a great question, and it's, it's a fundamental question. The one thing that I have learned, that statistic about our age of farmers is somewhat of an anomaly. When I got out of college in 1973, the average age of the Delaware farmer was 56. Today it's 57 or 58. When they check off the census, they, you check off who is the uh, primary operator. Well, it's always pop or grandpop. And then as the time goes on, the next generation's checking that box. So it's good data, but we need to understand it. And, and so just this week in Delaware, we've had Delaware Ag Week, which is a series of educational meetings, traditional farmers, uh, specialty, there was an organic session across the board. And it is amazing to me, so this is anecdotal, the number of young people that are coming to those meetings. And some of them... Are these, are you talking about traditional farmers? Well, I'm getting to that, okay, Mark. Okay. Um, many of them are the sons and daughters of traditional farmers mm -hmm. that are moving on. And there's been estate planning and some business planning. <clears throat> there are a lot of new farmers. Um, a lot of those people, the new ones, either work for traditional farmers or work in town or are school teachers or whatever they are. And they're branching off and starting their own operations. So, so it's there. I mean, that generational transfer is there. Now, I don't want to portray this as a bed of roses and everything. It is a challenge. It's hard. Uh, it's financially hard. But um, there is a tremendous amount of interest um, in the next generation, both from traditional and new. What I think is going to happen in Delaware, and I've talked to people in the Midwest and other places, commodity prices are down, and a lot of the older farmers who've had some good years are saying, you know what, I'm 65, I'm 70, I'm 75, I'm going to close down, I'm going to let my neighbors rent the farm or put it up for rent. And in some cases, one in particular that's just brilliant, a, a farmer that's in his early 60s is mentoring a person 
to take it over and they have a business arrangement and all that. So there's no one easy answer. The problem is there, but it is not as draconian as one might think. There are all kinds of emerging strategies that are happening, creative strategies. Let me get to the panel, then we'll come right the audience. So, so folks, who wants to jump in? Just jump in. Eric, Lane, somebody grab the mic. Well, I think one thing we definitely have to do is we have to make it financially viable um, for young people who usually have college debt. Many of them have gone to college and they've been Come interested in sustainable agriculture or agricultural policy, but they don't necessarily know the fundamentals of the business of farming, and they're shouldering a huge amount of student debt and potentially a huge amount of farm debt. And I think that maybe we need a new program that's similar to something like not the the GI Bill, but something similar to that that helps bridge that gap until they can get to a financially stable place because a lot of people start and quit because it's frustrating. It's frustrating to barely take home a profit and barely be able to feed yourself, much less the people that you're trying to sort of spread the message to the larger world. Ferd, go ahead. Yeah, if I could just jump in on the, on, the, on the asset side of this question. So there's the age of farmers and then there's the who controls the asset question at the farm level. So the majority of farm assets in the country are owned by people over the age of 75. Um, and, and the number of assets controlled by farmers under 35, I don't know the figure off the top of my head, but it's low. <laughs> and so, you know, that sort of frames up in some ways the generational shift. And it's, it's not a one-time thing. I mean, this is always churning along, so it's always a question. Um, you know, just to get a little political about it, uh, you know, one thing that is very likely to happen this year is whether whether it gets signed into law, I won't predict, but it will definitely move in that direction is is abolishing the estate tax. That will further concentrate asset control in the in the hands of the wealthy and the aged. Um, it will do the opposite of what you need to do if you were going to seriously take on how are we going to move assets in farm country to a new generation. So it gets really political. You will, you will also note that m most of the leading uh, farm organizations in the country strongly endorse that move. Um, so it's a huge political problem, but it, it, it gets at a piece of the, the what I think is the fundamentals in terms of economics related to that question. And, and McFarmers over here, Eddie, you, at lunch we were talking a bit about this. About this, I'm not Ed, I'm excuse me, Eric, we were talking about this at lunch about about um, this contradiction and this battle and, and, and what maybe does not have to be a battle, but we don't, why don't you pick up? Uh, well, I think you know one is to talk about the you know the age of age of farmers, and I th I think trying to uh, with with the age with the age of farmers, I I think trying to you know develop the mentorship programs that we have through like the Beginning Farmer and Rancher Coalition uh, efforts. I think that as well as with Future Harvest and CASA. And you know, with with some of the discussions about larger larger farms, I think you know, one thing that I've always tried to encourage. I I live in Rockingham County, Virginia, which is the largest agricultural county in Virginia, and if surrounded by both dairy and poultry farmers, I think you know, and certainly the given climate. How do we even have conversations about what is the reality? Of, of agriculture because I have also talked with you know some of the dairy farmers that want to pass on the farm to their children but are under tremendous debt loads and strain and and I think trying to better understand and not over glamorize you know farming because it's it's really tough work uh, as I said I'm have a dairy farmer who's an old order Mennonite, and to just to see the number of hours that they, every morning at four o'clock, I see the skid loader going down to get the corn so they can feed their dairy cows. In the you know summertime when they're uh, harvesting the corn silage, you know sometimes it's 24 hours a day. 
So I, to me, you know, one thing that we've been trying to do is, is there any way to find some common ground uh, around some of these issues? Uh, Mark and I were talking about, uh, you know, if we see some of the agricultural sectors as, as industries or manufacturing industries, uh, you know, do we want to outsource some of those industries to other areas or other countries? Uh, you know, because we're also, if we th look about both urban and rural communities, we're seeing a hollowing out of agricultural industries, manufacturing industries. So it's, I think we really have to look at a very comprehensive approach. And, you know, personally, this is my thought is, you know, does it always have to be us against them? And certainly with the current climate, it is us against them or it's, uh, you know, you don't believe what I do. And I think uh, somehow both at the state level as well as the federal level, hopefully can come together at some point because I think it's a lot of people will be hurting. There's a trend here people don't really think about, which is how much of industrial agriculture, poultry, hogs, and more, are going overseas. Just like automobiles went overseas. And how that will affect the future of farming and food in, the, in this country. It's, 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 it's a huge piece people don't talk about very much, but it's, it's a trend. You even watch like, like the, the conversation I've had with Purdue in the past, how many more of their farms are being, uh, farming is being done in Brazil and other countries throughout the other part of the hemisphere here. So, I mean, that, that's, this is a very real trend. Spencer? Yeah, so, so being from the mountain state, um, mountaineers are always free. Um, <laughs> let's you get, folks do love your state in West Virginia. We do, yeah. I'm gonna, I'll just dig that in where I can. Um, <laughs> you know, I think, I think a generous portion of the, the folks that I represent are really, you know, independent spirits. Um, and, and I think we, we're looking at an issue of, of, you know, food security. You know, um, I f forget who mentioned it earlier today, but but D.C., I think they said the cities have about three days of food on hand. And so if, if more and more of our farming is, is overseas or concentrated in places, I think we lose our ability um, to feed ourselves. And I, I, in an era of vertical integration with farming, you know, Costco running the farm and running the retail store and everything in between, you know, I think uh, it's dangerous. And, and I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Missouri. My family has a farm out there and, um, you know, I go back, I've been gone for 10 years, but I go back now and all of the what were family farms in very rural Missouri are now big contract farms and they're corporate farms and it scares, scares me. Um, and it, it, I think losing the ability to, to feed ourselves is a huge challenge and it's also, um, I, I think about our state again where, you know, we're kind of hemorrhaging a large portion of our population. Um, because there aren't jobs for young people. Um, and I think about a couple of really innovative projects that have popped up. We have about five or six incubator farms, um, and they each operate under a different model. They each kind of have a different bent, but they're taking young people, um, training them, giving them life skills, giving them finance skills, teaching them about agriculture and giving them a place to farm, um, and then plugging them into markets. And where my organization is interested in coming in as folks are exiting those one, two, three, five-year programs, whatever they happen to be, and coming and saying, hey, you have your three years of sales records. You maybe made a little bit of money. Um, we've got this piece of land that we can get into your hands for this price or this fee or something that's much more accessible. And so, um, you know, I think investment in that and investment, uh, this is a policy session, so, but investment from the state um, in, into policies that support that and support those kinds of education programs, I think, are important. So how do you think, let's give the audience out, I really want to hear Russell with, from a state level, where do you think we go? What do states have to wrestle with? And you can have a comment, and the panel will respond. We have about a half an hour left. And I'm going to ask you to either come to me or try to get to you with this mic so we can speak into it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I'll hold the mic just to make the sound right. But say as you will. Go ahead, sir. Uh, I'm Mike Shea from Red Top Farm, uh, Anne Arundel County. And there's three things that Anne Arundel County could be doing to help us because I think most of this uh, – enterprise here is about small farms and those solutions and energy are from the ground up. Sometimes the state level stuff down 
we don't know what's going on. And at the county level, that's where personally I'm bumping up against something. I, we are lucky. We are on a farm that was from 1760, but it was hundreds of acres. We're down to 13 acres now in the farmhouse, but we're productive. But what we do have is that population is around our farm. How could the county help us? They could allow us to have something more than just a, uh, uh, a, tr uh, a cart pulled behind a tractor to sell to the public. Our public in my community is willing to pay value added and more than retail than they are at our local grocery store to have a farm experience. Right now, the county will not allow the public to come inside a farm building. They need to deal with that. Because if they want to have a sustainable farm, we need to have a business model that works. Sustainable is about the right amount of money coming in. Uh, the other thing they could do is 13 acres doesn't fall into ag preservation. So we're paying retail taxes like we have a, uh, you know, a nice big home on 13 acres. I mean, we could have some assistance there. And, you know, th there's a great program on TV called Tiny Houses. If we were allowed to put a couple tiny houses on our thing, we could have interns and people learning farming from the next generation. But we aren't getting that help. And just like the watermen were pushed out of Annapolis because they really uh, didn't get help in time, they are now in my community, we need to help the small farmers from the ground up right here, right now. So, <clears throat> very well said. So, so I... I let me see what else we we'll bring come up here. We'll come on up, uh, uh, Carol. Um, but how would you respond to that? Anybody on this panel? Eric from from Virginia. Well, I really appreciate that comment. I th one thing that I've one thing that I think is, um, you know, depending on the audience, you know, when you talk to county officials, I think often we we talk about farms, but I I like to talk about you know we have forty seven thousand close to forty seven thousand independently owned businesses, and if we see three hundred go out, you know as an economic development or community developer, uh, really are you going to have your job if you're going to lose three three hundred businesses from your community or from your state? So so I think depending on the audience that you're speaking with, just you know, trying to convey how important farms are to the community, to the economy, and also uh, just the opportunities for entrepreneurship and diversification and what that means to the counties as well as region and state. But I mean, that part of that is I think the, the most of the laws governing agriculture have to do with these farm, the, the CAFOs and industrialized farms, and they also affect smaller farms who don't operate the same way, but they're adversely affected by the same rules. Isn't that part of it? Think, or am I reading that wrong? I think there's this notion that, or at least for us, that small farms are not economic development, or small farms don't bring enough money into the community to matter, um, which irritates me to no end as you guys can imagine because it's a livelihood for a lot of people um and so i think to that a couple of things popped out in what you were saying is one you made three very clear asks and i think a lot of times from for us from farmers they will tell us something that's not working or that's not right for their business but there's no like real clear policy asks so folks like myself need to get better at hearing farmers say things and figuring out what the policy ask is and then two I think maybe in your case there's um there's some power in numbers you know we we run policies every year in our state um that are centered centered around ag and when it's time to get something on an agenda it's the, it's the hey folks like please drop what you're doing and call so-and-so's office um and it I mean it's really really impactful and it's also really fun when um you get the like, all right, we're going to put it on the agenda for the love of God. Please stop having your people call me. Um, you know, it, it works. It works. So I, I really do appreciate and thank that. Com thank you for that comment. Yeah, Guy, go ahead. Yeah, Mark. Um, get the mic. Get the mic slide the I'm sorry. Uh, Mr. Shea, I really appreciate your comments, too. In Delaware, when it comes to direct marketing or small farms, the issues are either a county with zoning or one of those type of issues, or a combination of county and state with egress and regress for traffic into a farm market or a pick your own or whatever it is. And then the third one, 
um, there's a third one that the state does not a good job in helping farmers with. It's some regulatory thing. I, I don't know why I have a blank. No, it's more about the just the um, uh, logistics. Uh, well, the other thing is we are fortunate in 1967, Delaware passed a law that any farm 10 acres or more does not have to pay property tax on raw land. And that has been huge to the economic well-being of large and small farms. Now, every year I have a few people that are under 10 acres that want it changed, and maybe they'll change it someday. Uh, just a quick word about CAFOs. And, and I was grimacing, not because I was disagreeing, Mark. I was just trying to understand, thinking through. In Delaware, we have about 400 and some CAFOs. 95% of them are chicken farms. And 60% of those chicken farms that are CAFOs are small farmers, one or two houses. They contract with a poultry company and raise chickens on 10 or 20 or 30 acres. And that has been huge. The challenge has been handling the manure when there's not enough land and we get into relocating and do all kinds of things. But so I, I wouldn't characterize CAFOs as, quote, industrial agriculture. I would characterize them as CAFOs and, and they're small and they're large. 99% um, of the farms in Delaware, and I think it's over 95 in the region, are family owned. And, and so I get a little... Not nervous, but industrial is not the right adjective. I don't know what the right adjective is. Right. I mean, the the issue is, and it's, it's interesting where this is going to be going. I mean, the, the issue is is that most farms in that industry are small farmers who have two, three, four houses, maybe five houses on the land, do other kind of farming on the land, maybe do other work as well to make the farm sustainable. But they're, it's tied into this larger commodity farming in, that that is the marketplace in America. I mean, that's, that's right. right. So that I mean, that's what we're talking about. But but where I come from is the Delmarva Peninsula. We're talking about Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia. The trouble that I see with most of the small farmers in diversifying, especially into animal production, the resources are unavailable, such as your infrastructure. There's lack of transportation, there's lack of feed mills, there's lack of processing, and there's lack of buying the animals to start with. Um, not just chickens, but everything. Right. Um, I, you know, when, when I switched over, I went to eggs because I didn't have to process any meat. On-farm processing for me is not certified by a USDA inspector, so therefore state laws regulate or limit me to what my markets can be. And there's an issue there with we have to follow federal law, we have to follow state law. They're all differing, and trying to work all these logistics out is a nightmare. I mean, I go all the way to Pennsylvania for feed, and that is totally ridiculous for bulk feed. Um, you know, and as far as the chicks that we buy, we start our hens out as chicks. They come all the way from New Mexico. That is stupid. Um, we're talking about carbon footprints and whatnot. If the states were to get together, especially in my area, how hard would it be to work together to develop this? I mean, you can travel from one end of that peninsula to the other in what, Ed, three Three hours? Three you know. Um, takes me four. But. Yeah. And, and, okay, so let's, yeah, I used to be four, not anymore. Um, but if the three states were to combine to help with these things, and especially with the meat processing, to ensure that it could be a USDA-inspected facility so it would open up the markets for the farmers. I mean, this is, uh, Carol Morrison, this, I think it was one of the critical points. We've talked about this a lot. Over the years, and our, this program is going to be on sound bites, our weekly show on food and farm. Again, I think this is one of the issues we've wrestled with because let's take Maryland right now. And, and Ferdinand, I want you to jump in on how this might, what, what some ideas are about floating around how to deal with this. There's like a, there was a, that, that facility was built at University of Maryland Eastern Shore. Mm -hmm. Never opened it. It's been there forever, which is a up to date, state of the art facility for slaughter 
that small farmers can be using all across Delmarva rather than having to not have a place to go, and so they can't sell their product. I mean, so th th these issues are real. So that, that, these are the kind of things that change the nature of the economy, this kind of farming that we're talking about here in this room that nobody seems to be taking seriously or dealing with. That was the first part of our panel that I moderated last week, the Future Harvest Casa's 18th annual conference called Policy Scoper, what's happening in your state capital. And I want to thank my guests, Ed Key, the Delaware Secretary of Agriculture, Spencer Moss, Executive Director of West Virginia Food and Farm Coalition, Eric Benfeld, Area and Extension Specialist of Community Viability at the Virginia Cooperative Extension at Virginia Tech, Lane Sidlowski, Food Policy Director in the District of Columbia Office of Planning and the District of Columbia Food Policy Council, and Ferd Hoffner, Senior Strategic Advisor to the National Sustainable Agricultural Coalition. Tune in next week to Soundbites for the rest of this conversation. It gets intense with our audience. Don't miss that. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our senior producer is Mark Gunnery. Our producer is Imani Spence. Our research producer is Calvin Perry. Our production assistant is Nadia Ramlagan. Our engineer is Andrea Milton. Theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. And to podcast the Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. And for WEAA, 88.9 FM, home of the big 4-0 birthday bash taking place Saturday, January 28th. More info at WEA.org. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.